We turn in our chapter to Job and chapter 38 uh, that we read from uh, today, Job and chapter 38. And as indicated, we've come to the climax of the book of Job in chapters 38 to 42a, when God answers Job. Anna Blom, who published a biography on Rembrandt, the Dutch artist, he focused on the first 25 years of his life. And his question that he sought to answer within this biography was, what made Rembrandt Rembrandt? He mentions uh, the nature of the man and his background and genealogy, but then he goes on to emphasize the nurture which was brought to bear on Rembrandt to produce such an outstanding artist. He talked about some of the experiences uh, which the man had, his bankruptcy, uh, the tragedy within his life, neglect by his parents, and Blom argues that these excruciating experiences are evidenced in the paintings which Rembrandt went on to produce. He sought to ascertain the the influences which produced and shaped this particular artist. And in the book of Job, as we have lingered Uh, over his experiences, his experiences of success initially, becoming the greatest man of the East, rising to a position of judge and influence within his community, and then falling from those great heights down into the very depth and darkness of suffering and bereavement and isolation. We recognize that these extreme experiences will have shaped the character and personality of Job. But in this climactic section of Job, we we realize that beyond those human experiences, beyond his success and his suffering, there, there is this supreme influence of his God. His God shaping Job. Is God teaching Job and moulding his character and his faith? And it's that part we come to in our study today. We have seen how Job is an incredibly well-structured book. Sometimes some of you have spoken to me. You have got lost in in, in the the, the middle of Job and wondered where the argument is and, and, and searching for the strand and thread of this book. But we've seen that it's very structured. There is the the prologue in chapters 1 and 2 describing Job and and the suffering that came to him. And then in 3 to 27, there is the the dialogue with Job and his three friends as they have wrestled over why people suffer. And then the soliloquy when Job speaks about himself and to himself in 28 to 31. And then the monologue of Elihu that we thought of last Sabbath evening, the younger man waiting till the others are finished. And then he speaks, arguing that Job is not suffering for what he's done in the past, but suffering to prevent him from doing something in the future. 
And then we come to the climax in chapters 38 to 42. Here is God speaking to Job. In 1803, John Walter II, at the age of 27, took over the Times newspaper. And newspapers in 1803 were were filled with many stories, often put there because of bribery or blackmail. You you want to damage your neighbor's business, and so you blackmail or bribe the the newspaper editor to, to... contain a story about your neighbours. But John Walter II, considered an eccentric, he sought to purge away from his newspaper stories influenced by bribery or blackmail. And this is what we have in the the climax of Job. Elihu has spoken. Job's friends have spoken. Job has spoken. And there's much error in all of their speeches. Dear is God clearing away the wrong perceptions, setting the record straight, denouncing to Job the truth. There's two themes that run through uh, these verses that, that we emphasize today. Greatness of God and the grace of God. This is the message that God brings to the sufferer, Job. The message he brings to us in our suffering. God is great and gracious. And we need to hold on to both of those. The greatness of God. The point being made is that Job's mind is small. He's man. He cannot fully understand all that's happening. And God lingers over this point and emphasizes it to Job and presses it into his heart. You're only a man, Job. You cannot understand the infinite ways of God. What a lesson for us in our suffering. We struggle, we question, we wonder, we ask. And one answer is you you won't be able to understand because you're only human. And God in heaven is infinite. So let's see just uh, briefly the greatness of God emphasized here. It's dwelt on, it's lingered over, and it's in a whole range of ways. And inanimate things, uh, first of all. 38 verse 4, God asked Job about the foundations of the earth. Where were you? Were you there, Job? Were you there at the beginning? Did you make them? Then in verse number 8, he talks about the sea. Did you limit them, Job? Did you set the bounds, the sea that doesn't flood over all all the the, the land? It's held back there. Did you do that, Job? In verse number three, the morning. Do you bring about the dawn every morning, Job? Do you dispel the darkness and in this regular manner cause the light to come? Are, Are you that powerful, Job? 
Then in verse 4, uh, sorry, fourthly, in verse 16, do you know the, the origin of the springs of water uh, that come into the, the farmyard, that come into places out in the desert to, to slake the thirst of the, the lost traveler? Do you know where those springs originate from, Job? Are you that smart? Are you that clever? Fifthly, in verse 24, God talks about the light. Where does it come from, he asks. Where does it go, Job? Do you know this? Here's another subject for you, Job, to consider, to search out, to understand. Do you have an answer to that? The snow in verse number 22. Do you know where it's stored? It comes to us each Christmas time. Each winter it comes down, but where's it been? Who, who holds it up there? Are there big refrigerators around somewhere? Job, what about the snow? Do you know where it's stored that it comes down? The rain in verse 25. Who sends the rain? The stars in verse number 31. Do you direct their movements? Do you control them? The clouds in verse number 34. Do you manage the clouds? Do you allow the lightning to, to, to shine in them? In verse number 21, God is speaking, ironically, isn't he, to Job. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Job had a, a sense of, 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 of being a man of understanding and of grasping things, and, and God speaks to him sarcastically, ironically. You know, Job, you, you were born then. You, you're an ancient man. Surely you understand these vast things. And of course he doesn't. The inanimate creation indicates the greatness of God. How finite we are. How much we do not know or understand. And, and this is the point in emphasizing this. Then the animate objects are included here as well. In verse 39, God asked Job, Do you supply the lion their food? In verse 1 of chapter 39, the goats have unusual birth patterns. Do you control that? Have you made that? Do you understand that? In verse 5, he speaks of the donkey who loves to go free, who loves the wild, who loves to be untrammeled and, and unrestricted. And have you made the donkey like that? God asks. Verse 9, he mentions the wild ox who is powerful and yet reluctant to serve and use that power in farming contexts. The ostrich in verse 13 that can run at 40 miles per hour but cannot care for its young very well. The horse in verse 19 with strength and speed and flowing mane. The hawk in verse 26 with its ability to soar and migrate. Behemoth in chapter 40 verse 15, so powerful. Leviathan chapter 41 and verse 33, so fearless. Here are animate creatures within creation. God spells it out and takes his time. The ostrich, the donkey, the horse, 
Leviathan, behemoth. Consider them, Job. Consider the traits. Consider the features of these creatures. Have you given them those instincts? Have you formed them in this diverse way? And all of this is emphasizing the smallness of us and of Job. In 1629, an art critic visited Leiden and saw Rembrandt and others, the early stages of their art careers. He said they were more boys than men, but also that the critic went on to speak of the miracle of talent and skill which they had. He was awed by their great ability. And it's this sense of awe that that God desires will enter into the heart of Job in this conversation. That he will recognize, and we too, that we are but men with limited ability and finite understanding. The greatness of God. But secondly, the second emphasis throughout the speech of God here is the grace of God. And God emphasizes his kindness, his compassion, his mercy towards his creation. Both to the lower creation, first of all, and then to mankind. The grace of God in his lower creation We see it in the stars in chapter 38, verse 32. Can you guide the bear with its children? The stars in the the shape of a bear as they they move across the heavens with with its little ones. The grace that's there sustaining them, guiding them. We we taste it in the verse. Can you guide the the bear with its children? The rain in verse number 37 and see the imagery that's used here. Can you tilt the water skins of the heavens? What an image this is of God's compassion and grace. Here is a a weary, thirsty traveler longing for a sip of cold water and and the the, the water skin is, is tilted over to allow them to drink. And so God in heaven, he tilts over the rain to fall on the earth, to slake the the, the barrenness of the desert, to to give us green fields and cause the crops to grow. His grace and compassion is seen in the inanimate creation. In verse 38, he speaks uh, of the the, the dawn and the the, the morning uh, breaking and coming uh, upon, upon the earth. Uh, which allows mankind to work, to travel, and to pursue what they are doing. His compassion, his grace, is seen in the inanimate creation, but also in in, in the the lower creation, uh, among the animate creatures. In verse 41 of chapter 38, we we read of the, the ravens, and he provides them with food. They cry out to him. And in his grace and mercy, 
he provides for them. The hawk in chapter 39, verse 27, it goes to the south. He is placed within it this this instinct to migrate to warmer climates and survive there and, and feed there and then return once again. The horse in chapter 39, verse 22, that is calm in battle. It does not turn back from the sword. Other animals will will freak and, and, and run away filled with fear and terror. But the horse has such instinct that, that God has placed within it that even in the battlefield it can remain calm. Such is the grace and compassion of God within the lower creation. We have the expression that someone is true to their form and by that we admit that the characteristics of an individual, they, they come to the fore even in moments when they are taken off guard. So some words slip out or some action that is, is done by them instinctively reveals the heart that they have. They are true to form. And here is God in the lower creation. And his heart of grace is evidenced even in the lower creation. In the inanimate inanimate aspects of the lower creation. And in the animate aspects of the lower creation. The heart of grace that he has is demonstrated. And God is calling Job to see this and calling us to see this in our suffering that around us in this world there is not only the greatness of God that we cannot understand his ways fully but there is also the tenderness, the gentleness, the compassion of God in feeding the ravens and giving the horse a, a calm nature. Providing the hawk with an instinct to fly. But then there is the grace of God towards humankind. And God shows his grace towards Job and his friends. He's gracious towards the friends of Job. And and we see this in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 42. He says in verse 8, I will not deal with you according to your folly. Friends of Job had spoken wrongly about God. They'd misrepresented him. They'd taken his name in vain. They'd They'd ascribed actions to God that were not true of God. They maintained that Job's suffering was because God was judging him for his sin and they were wrong to do that. But God in his grace says to the three friends of Job in 42.8, I will not deal with you according to your folly. By sacrifice offered by Job, by intercession offered by Job, God would not deal with them according to their folly. And it's pointing us beyond Job and the friends, isn't it? 
It's pointing us to the mediator, Jesus Christ, who by his sacrifice and by his intercession, God says to us in his grace, I will not deal with you after your folly. The costly sacrifice of Christ secures for us forgiveness and righteousness by God's grace. But then he deals with Job in his grace as well. He points out Job's faults. In chapter 40, verse 2, God calls Job a fault finder. Job acknowledges his sins and his wrongs before God in chapter 40 and verse 4. I am of small account. I lay my hand on my mouth. He recognizes that he has erred in his speech. And he has spoken things that were wrong. And he's humbled before this revelation of the greatness and of the grace of God. But God acts in grace towards Job as well. He comes to him in the whirlwind, chapter 38, verse 1, and chapter 40, verse 6, we read, God answered Job out of the whirlwind. The whirlwind in the Old Testament was often the scene of God's presence It was scary, it was powerful, but yet it was the symbol that God was present with his people. And here in the whirlwind, not just God coming and speaking with Job, but this visible evidence of the presence and greatness of God. He speaks to him in the whirlwind. Here's the grace of God coming to this man who had erred, who had sinned, who had spoken wrongly at times. God in his grace comes to the sufferer and helps him. The grace of God is evidenced in the title used of God from chapter 38 verse 1 on. Then the Lord answered Job. The Lord was used, the title Lord was used in chapters 1 and 2, but never again until chapter 38, verse 1. Here is God, the God of grace, the God of covenant, the God who is changeless. This special title of God's compassion, mercy, and love in his covenant grace being used again. This is the God who comes to Job in his suffering, in his questions, in his pain. And then the grace of God is evidenced in God giving Job double of all that he had. And we'll we'll think of that this evening. The greatness of God. The grace of God. The greatness of God is a doctrine that's emphasized throughout the Bible to sufferers that God is incomprehensible that he is big and we are small that we cannot understand all that he is doing in our suffering 
He declares in the heavens that as the heavens are high above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. Over the years, I've often been in the presence of suffering and always been uncomfortable when someone has said in the depths of their pain, I don't understand the reason now, but someday I will. And I've been really sympathetic to to their position and to their thought. But I'm not sure it's right. Because our God is incomprehensible. Our minds are little. His is infinite. And how even with a glorified mind could the infinite God ever sit us down at the edge of his throne and explain to us all the reasons for our suffering. And perhaps it's best for us if we can say by his grace, that I don't understand the reason for my pain. But my heavenly Father, who has infinite wisdom and infinite love, does understand. I was struck this week in reading the last words of Bishop John Hooper, who was taken to the stake and and burned for being a follower of Jesus Christ just at the start of the English Reformation. There he was, tied to the stake, and the fire starting to burn. And this is what he said. Lord, I am hell, but thou art heaven. I am swill and a sink of sin. But thou art a gracious God and a merciful Redeemer. And isn't that where Job has been brought? Isn't that where we are to be brought to? That we are small. And God is infinitely great. His grace in the lower creation evidenced in the animate and inanimate creation all around us. And we're to use that argument, aren't we? Isn't this what Jesus used of God so cares for the the sparrows that, that fall down to the earth? Not one of them is forgotten before our Father, Jesus says. He's looking at God's common grace to the, the animate creation, and he argues from that. How much more are you of more value than the sparrows? 
God comes to Job, revealing to him his grace in, in the animate and inanimate creation, and Job's to reason from that. This God cares for me in my suffering. There was a raging debate one time at a congregational meeting in Charles Spurgeon's church in, in London. And, and the theologians and the, the well-read in the congregation, and there were multitudes of them, uh, were, were arguing with one another across the church building. It was over whether God hears the prayers of a sinner. Does God only hear the prayers of someone who is in Christ Jesus? We pray in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So does God hear the prayers of a sinner? Or only hear the prayers of a Christian. And Spurgeon remembers how an uneducated older woman silenced the room by quoting from Job in chapter 38, the last verse Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? She reasoned, if God hears the cries of a raven, then he will hear the prayers of any human being in Christ or out of Christ that calls to him. And lastly, the grace of God to believers. Job 42 emphasizes the grace of God to believers. That in Christ we are loved and always are loved and always will be loved. That as Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it interesting in John 11 that alongside of the record that Jesus lingered where he was when he heard that Lazarus was sick, the very next verse says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Alongside of the delay in Christ going to Bethany is the assurance that he loved them. And here in Job, God gives Job the assurance that he loves him and is ever with him. John Currid, in his wonderful book, Why Do I Suffer? He records the, the conversation with a friend who was diagnosed with cancer and the friend by Christ's grace said, God brought this on me. He entrusted it to me because he knew I needed it, that it would be good for me. The grace of God with the sufferer. Maybe you're not a Christian yet here today, and you argue that there is no God because there's suffering. How can there be a God when there's so much suffering, like Job's suffering across the world? But these chapters reply to your argument. 
that you are thinking of suffering with a small mind, a human mind. You're not big enough to understand human suffering. But it also says, you come to the one who is the God of heaven and earth, who in his grace sent his son to be the sacrifice that through his blood we can be forgiven and made right with God.